Good morning. My name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here for a year now. Um, and uh, this morning, we're taking a break from uh, the series we've been in for the last couple weeks to, to talk about what it means to come to the party. And uh, I want to invite you to come to the party that Jesus is inviting us to. So if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to uh, John chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, there's a blue Bible on the ground at the end of the aisle. And if you're following along there, you can uh, read along with me uh, on page 887. Let me invite you to stand as we listen to God's Word together. This is, I feel like almost every week I'm tempted to say this, but this is, I think, this week, this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Uh, this is an account of Jesus at a wedding, and this is the first miracle that Jesus performed. Let's read God's word in John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for this beautiful picture of Jesus' first miracle that gives us, in, the, in all the weirdness of this story, just a, a glimpse and an insight into who Jesus is. And I pray that you would open our eyes to see him more clearly as we look at your word this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated, please. Will you come to the party? This morning is our, our birthday. <laughs> we put something on Facebook that I had shared. It's, hey, this Sunday is our first birthday. And I, I ran into a, like an acquaintance at Starbucks on Friday morning or Thursday morning, he said, uh, happy birthday. And I was confused. I said, what are you talking about? I said, didn't you say it was your birthday? No, it's the church's birthday. <laughs> um, it's our first birthday. And so this morning as we're celebrating our first birthday, our first anniversary, I want to talk about establishing a culture. Um, establishing a culture is something that any group or organization has to do. A family has to establish a culture. A family has to say, who are we? And um, what do we want to be known for? Uh, what, are we, what are we willing to fight for? 
Every group has to establish a culture. Companies have to establish a culture. Schools, sports teams have to establish a culture. And churches have to establish a culture. Why is it so important to establish a culture? Well, um, it's important to establish a culture because as uh, leadership management guru Peter Drucker somewhat famously said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Okay, you might say, this is what we want to do, but who you are is going to eventually trump what you want to do. And so it's crucial, it's key to establish a culture because a culture is actually going to determine what gets done and who you become. You have to establish a culture. Let me give you a few examples. Uh, I mean, this is just super quick. Just think for a minute about the difference between Apple and IBM. Right? That's a, that's a clear picture of the why culture is so important. Um, uh, another example, um, t uh, Toyota. Toyota, you know, why does Toyota, why are they so effective at building great cars and trucks? At the heart of Toyota's culture is a word called Kaizen, which is, I think, a Japanese word that means improve. And, uh, and Kaizen is the, is the philosophy, the culture of the company of, of Toyota's kind of culture. And um, everybody in... Um, in Toyota's whole, you know, from the, the, the factory workers to the upper management, know that they, every day they have the opportunity, they are encouraged to improve the process by which they make and produce cars. Uh, and so, you know, factory workers are encouraged, if there's a more efficient way to do your job, every day try to find a more efficient way to do that. And you don't have to submit a report and run it up the, you know, the, the chain of command and management, you just, you just do it and you teach other people and you do it more efficiently. And so what happens at the end of the day, everybody from the lowest factory worker to the CEO, when a truck rolls off or a car rolls off the, the assembly line, the whole company knows we have, we have had a part in producing this car. It produces ownership and buy-in. Uh, it was so effective that General Motors entered into a partnership um, with Toyota, where Toyota would teach GM their process, and they opened up this huge factory together in Fremont, California, and Toyota was gonna teach GM the, the Toyota method, Kaizen, for producing cars, and it didn't work. It didn't work at all, because they taught the method, but they couldn't teach the culture. And the culture of GM was not one that said we are going to continually, uh, the culture of Toyota was if you're working on the assembly line and something goes wrong, you pull the chain and you stop the assembly line. No matter how small the problem is, and you fix it and then you go back to work. GM said don't stop the assembly line no matter what. If there's a problem, somebody else will fix it further down the line. And so GM couldn't learn, and we know, right? GM couldn't learn the, um, the culture of, uh, of Kaizen. Um, another example of Kaizen, or not Kaizen, of culture, uh, Ritz-Carlton. Ritz-Carlton has become known worldwide for establishing a culture of hospitality. And uh, I heard a story about a Ritz-Carlton employee at their San Francisco hotel. And he had uh, been helping a, a customer in the San Francisco hotel who was checking out, who was flying to Hawaii for a business presentation. And uh, this employee discovered that this man had left his laptop behind. And so the employee booked a flight, got on the plane, flew to Hawaii, found out what hotel this guy was staying at, took him his laptop, flew back, didn't bother to get permission for any of this. You know, can I book a flight on, company, on the company's dime? 
just went ahead and did it, and he was applauded. He was held up as an example of Ritz-Carlton employees going, going over and above that there is no price too, pay, uh, too high to pay to serve customers. Um, nobody needs to ask permission to do the right thing. People are empowered to do whatever it takes to get the job done. Establishing a culture is key to everything that we want to do. And in my mind, establishing a culture is at the heart of what we're trying to do here at Resurrection OC. Who, who are we and who are we going to be? What do we want to become? Culture is key because culture eats strategy for breakfast. Um, and I got to say, this is hard. This is really hard work. <laughs> this is the hardest thing I have ever done in my life, is figure out how to build a culture where we are going to be a generous church. Um, and it's hard because it doesn't just happen. It doesn't happen because like 18 months ago, some people sat in a room and figured out a plan and we had a conversation and then it just happened. <laughs> uh, nothing remotely close to that is what's going to establish a culture. And we've got to say the same things over and over and over again. It takes hard work. It takes repetition. It takes being very clear about who we are and what we believe is important. Um, I mean, one of the decisions, one of the things that we talked about fairly early on was, are we going to be a church where we just try to always do the right thing? Now, you might say, okay, yeah, that's what we want to do. We always want to do the right thing. But my fear was that if we say, hey, we're going to do the right thing no matter what, that it was going to um, lead us into a culture where we'd always just be resting on the, the idea of playing it safe, that we would be afraid to take risks, that we would be afraid to make mistakes, uh, you know, we would never want to sing a new song, even though the Bible says sing a new song to the Lord. We never want to sing a new song because the new songs these days, like, they're just wishy-washy. Let's only sing old songs. You know, we know the old songs are good, so we'll do that because it's safe. Or you could flip it the other way, and, you know. All those old songs are awful. They don't work for people anymore. Let's only sing new songs, right? No, we don't want to have this culture where we just play it safe, uh, where we make sure that we've got all of our ducks in a row first. Um, Instead, we've tried to establish a culture of generosity. We've tried to establish a culture around the gospel, around beauty and vulnerability. Um, we've said that we want to be a generous church. We've said that we want to be a church where we help people move beyond just being fine and busy by connecting people with God. We want to tell stories about what God is doing in our lives. We want to help people um, discover their giftedness we want to help people connect with God in the everyday of their lives. We want to be a church that throws great parties. Um, there's so many ways we could talk about who we want to be, but the question um, comes down to uh, how do we become that? How do we instill that culture in our church? And so this morning I want to look at this passage because I think it paints a beautiful picture of who Jesus is. And at the end of the day, we're not just making this up. Um, I'm not just making up, this is, I think this would be a great kind of a church. But this is the culture of the church that we want to establish because this is who our Savior is. And uh, in John chapter 2, we see um, almost like in, in, um, in foreshadowing what Je the kind of Savior that Jesus is. You remember um, in high school, I remember reading um, The Great Gatsby. And The Great Gatsby, there's this you know, across the, uh, the, the water from Gatsby's house, there's this flashing green um, light. 
And what our high school English teachers taught us is that, you know, that it's foreshadowing that this story is going to be about money, right? Well, in this passage, there's these little hints that you wouldn't even notice, that you wouldn't even pick up on, but they show us who Jesus is and the kind of Savior that he will become. Not, not that he's going to you know, grow into it, not that he isn't that kind of Savior, but by the end of the book of John, it will be so abundantly clear, just these little hints that we see in John chapter 2. And can I just show you, uh, really, before we kind of, in some ways, get into this, how weird this passage is. I, I feel like if you've been in church for any length of time, you've heard this story of Jesus turning water into wine, and the weirdness of it is probably worn off on you. But think about what happens in this passage. Jesus is at a wedding, and he's never done a miracle in his life, and Mary, his mother, comes up to him and says, Jesus, Jesus, they're out of wine, Jesus. Like, why does Mary think Jesus can do something about it? He's never done a miracle in his life, right? Um, and Jesus, what does Jesus say? He says literally, I know Sam's looking at the Greek in the back. It's translated differently in most of our passages. But what he's literally saying is, what is this between you and me? My hour has not come. My hour has not yet come. Like, what in the world are you talking about? She's talking about wine. Jesus says, what is this to me? This my hour. Is, what are you talking about, Jesus? Um, so, but, but what's clear is Jesus doesn't want to do it, right? He, she says, you need to make some wine or do something about the wine. Jesus says, I don't want to do something about the wine. And then Mary says to the servants, just do whatever he tells you to do. And then he does it. Like, if he doesn't want to do it, why does he, why does he do it, right? That's a really weird passage. Um, I think it's funny. Why is, this, um, why is this the event that leads Jesus, uh, his disciples to believe in him? What does this tell us about the kind of Savior that Jesus is? Well, the first thing that I want you to see is that this shows us that Jesus is a humble Savior. It's a humble Savior. Uh, he is a humble Savior. Jesus is at this wedding, and his mother is there. This may have been like a, a family friend of Jesus' family. And it's here that he performs his first miracle, and it's such a humble miracle. Um, I mean, almost nobody even recognizes that there's a miracle done there. Uh, Jesus obviously knows. Mary knows. The servants know. It's not clear that anybody else knows. Um, you'd think if you're going to come onto the scene as the savior of the world, you might want to do it with a bang, right? Let's walk on water here. Let's raise somebody from the dead. Let's heal a disease. You know, let's make fire come down out of the sky. Like, there's so many things Jesus could have done as his first miracle. And he does this really ordinary miracle that almost nobody even sees. Um, why is he doing this? Why does he even bother? Well, a wedding in this culture was a big deal. You know, weddings are always big deals, right? For anybody who's getting married, a wedding is a pretty darn big deal. But in, this, in the Jewish culture, the ancient Near East culture, a wedding was just this massive event. It, took, it was like a week-long event. Um, it, it was so much a part of just not like a, you know, the marriage between this man and this woman and, and what that means in their lives, but it was, it was about a family and who this family was becoming and kind of passing the baton to the next generation. So you pull out all of the stops for a wedding. Uh, you're going to throw a week-long party. This is going to be the party of parties for your family, the thing that people are going to be talking about for years to come. And they run out of wine halfway through the party. Before, I mean, a party ending early is always a bummer. Um, have you ever been at a party where you like run out of food or you run out of drinks? It's a bummer to run out of something, and the party's going to end early. 
but especially in this culture. Can you imagine being at a wedding and halfway through the wedding they run out of wine? I mean, gosh, like, couldn't they afford any more? Come on, people. Um, the shame, the embarrassment. And this is the occasion for Jesus' first miracle. And what I think we see in this is that we have a Savior who cares about the embarrassment of probably like a 19-year-old man. I mean, isn't that incredible? That that's the kind of God that we have. Somebody who is a, a Savior who is willing to do an unnoticed miracle to save a 19-year-old man from embarrassment shows us what kind of God the God of the universe is, that the God of the universe is kind. In the, um, in the last few days of Obama's presidency, I know some of you are like, Obama! Just let it go. Just let it go. <laughs> the official White House photographer released some of his favorite pictures from Obama's eight years in the White House. And the one that, that captured a lot of people's hearts was uh, this picture of a five-year-old little boy, a black little boy, in the Oval Office. And uh, this boy had, uh, I think his dad worked in the office or, uh, in, in, in the White House or something. And he was leaving, and, and so he brought his family to get their picture with the president. And this little black boy was so overwhelmed that the president of the United States was like him. And he says to Obama, he says, are you like me? And he says, yeah, I'm like you. And the little boy says, is your hair like mine? And Obama doesn't say yes. He says, see for yourself. And he bends down. And the little boy goes, <laughs> and Obama says, touch it, dude. <laughs> and there's this picture of a five-year-old little boy rubbing the head of the President of the United States. And that tells you something about the character of that man, doesn't it? Even as much as you're all like, oh, Obama. <laughs> it's incredible, right? This passage reveals something about who Jesus is. It shows us that the Lord of the universe is kind, that he's humble, that he makes himself vulnerable, that he cares, um, that he cares about you, that he cares about your embarrassment, your hurt, your struggle. That's who he is. He's a humble Savior. But secondly, we see in this passage that Jesus is not just a humble Savior, but he's a Savior who throws great parties. It's great that John tells us exactly, well, not exactly, but he tells us how much wine Jesus makes. He says there are six jars, and each jar held 20 to 30 gallons of water, and they filled them up to the brim, and Jesus turns that much water into wine. So, at a minimum here, we're talking about 120 gallons of wine, maybe as much as 180 gallons of wine. So if we take the low-end number, 120 gallons of wine is about 605 wine bottles. Okay? 605 bottles of wine. Now, the MC, the master, I think of him as like the DJ, the guy with the headphones on, gets some of the taste of the wine, doesn't know where it comes from, he says, this is really good wine. So if we say the wine was good wine, 25 bucks a bottle, that puts 605 bottles of wine at $25 a bottle, just over $15,000. Okay. Jesus doesn't make just enough wine. Um, when Mary comes and says, Jesus, they're out of wine, Jesus doesn't like to reach into his toga, 
pull out his wallet and go, I got a 20. You know, who else is chipping in here? <laughs> um, I heard somebody, uh, kind of a, a pastor acquaintance of mine named Ricky Jones, he said it like this. Um, he said, imagine it's Friday evening and you're heading home from work and you're going to stop off at BevMo and pick up a bottle of wine on the way home. Now, if you're in line at BevMo and the guy in front of you has a six-pack, you're thinking, oh, yeah, he's going to go chill out. If he's got a couple of six-packs, you're thinking, oh, he's maybe going to a party. But if the guy in front of you backs up his truck and loads 120 gallons of wine into the back of his truck, you think, this guy is the party. I don't need this <laughs> bottle. I'm going with him. Right? And that's who Jesus is. That's who Jesus is. The question that we have to think about is this. Do you really believe that God is good? Do you really believe that God wants good things for you? Um, I was making cookies with my kids. And we get all the ingredients out. And, you know, I've got four kids. So it takes, like, forever to do anything. You know, spent hours making this big batch of cookies. And uh, it's this great recipe. And the smell, smell of cookies has filled the whole house. And we bake the cookies. And we set them out. And we've got to let them cool. And uh, all countertops are all covered. With, there's cookies everywhere. And my kids are like, Dad, can we have a cookie? And I said, No! We're giving them all away. You can't have one of them. No, that didn't really happen. <laughs> You'd have to be an awful father to do that, right? You'd have to be a monster to do something like that. And yet that's who we all think God is. That God has put us in a world that's just beautiful and wonderful and filled with awe and glory and wonder. And then he says, and you can only have this tiny little sliver of it, and I'm going to hold you back from all that is good from you. Every unbeliever, and I would say, you know, the vast majority of Christians think that that's the way God treats us. That he has shown us all of his goodness, and then he won't. He puts us, you know, on the other side of a chain-link fence. But that's not the picture of the kind of Bible that we see here, is it? This is a God who uh, makes 120, 180 gallons of wine at a wedding to save a groom from embarrassment. It shows who he is. His goodness is overflowing. His goodness is never going to run out. We have some acquaintances, some friends, some very, very wealthy, generous people. And um, last summer they invited us to a party. And uh, we went to the party, and there were like six or eight food trucks there. And, they're, and it's all free, and it's whatever you want. They invited us to another party. It's this afternoon. And we cleared our schedule because we're going. We're like, this is amazing. <laughs> right? That's who, that's who Jesus is. And I have to admit that, if I'm honest, when I think about Resurrection OC... And I think about our future and what is it going to take to, you know, for this church to grow and, and be here for 10, 15, 20 years. It's scary. And yet, I don't believe that God's goodness is going to run out on us. I just don't believe that he's called us here. He's done, I mean, all this stuff that we saw in the video and more that Jason didn't get around to putting in. Because <laughs> that was enough. I just don't believe he's going to be like, and we're done, right? You know, one thing that we do every week is we sing. 
And there aren't that many places in our culture where, you know, you get together in a group and you sing. Sometimes, you know, the national anthem, right? The start of a, start of a you know, whatever sports event. Um, but, you know, for 2,000 years, when God's people have gotten together every week, we sing. Why do we sing? Why do we do this thing that feels very weird? Because we have a God who's worth singing about. We have a God who has been so overwhelmingly good to us, not just given us just enough, but he has gone so far beyond and above what we could hope or think we need or imagine that he would do. And so we sing, we celebrate. We don't care about looking a little bit silly because we have a God worth singing about. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is worth singing about? We see in this passage that Jesus' ministry starts at a party because the end of his ministry, the goal of his ministry, is to get us all to a party. And that's what the book of Revelation says, that all of human history is moving towards a party that's about meeting Jesus. Jesus' ministry, Jesus' first miracle is at a wedding because the, the purpose of Jesus' ministry is to get us all to a wedding where he will, Jesus will finally... Um, see his glorious bride at the top of the aisle and we will know him and he will know us and there will be no more distance or veil or separation from the God who loves us. That's who Jesus is. And that's what he's doing. He's bringing us to a party where there will be plenty of wine. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? I remember the first time I... I told Josh Bastian, he said, well, how are you going to start this church? I'm like, we're just going to throw a bunch of parties. He's like, you're going to do what? <laughs> Is your idea of going to a party at a church, wow, that's going to be really lame. <laughs> then you're not listening to the God of the Bible. Jesus is a humble Savior who throws great parties. Third thing I want you to see in this passage is the cost of the party. Right? A party parties are expensive. Somebody asked us last week, uh, and we had this great Christmas party at Lola's and Ladera. It was amazing. Somebody said, was that, was that really expensive? You wouldn't even believe how expensive that party was. But it was a great party, wasn't it? I have to unravel some of the weirdness of this passage, some of the mystery of this passage, for you to explain the cost of this party. Because what happens in this passage, like I said, is really weird. Jesus is at this party, and they run out of wine, and Jesus says, um, Mary says, Jesus, they're out of wine. And Jesus says, woman, uh, you know, some of your translations might not say it like that, but Jesus is, let's say at the very least, grumpy. Um, I mean, it, 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 it borders on rude the way he responds to his mother. He doesn't say, mom, come on, mom. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Mary's going, what are you talking about? Your hour? Jesus, we're just talking about the wine. What are you talking about? It's a non sequitur, it seems like. What is going on? It almost seems like Jesus is there and his mind is on something else. Right? It's like he's daydreaming at this wedding and Mary interrupts his daydream by saying, Jesus, they don't have wine and he's angry about something. Why does it seem like Jesus is daydreaming? Well, what do you think about when you're at a wedding? You know, if you're at a wedding and you're married, you tend to think about your wedding, right? And if you're at a wedding and you're single, you tend to think about what your future wedding might one day be like. And you begin to long for who will that person be and what will, what will our wedding look like? 
And here, Jesus, a single man, is at a wedding and he's daydreaming about what every single person daydreams about at a wedding. And Mary says to him, there's no wine. And he says literally, do you know what this is between you and me? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Throughout the book of John, John is like dropping these breadcrumbs where Jesus talks about his hour. Um, And here he says, my hour has not yet come. In John chapter 7, it says they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but no one could lay a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. In John 12, Jesus prays, My soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. It's building, it's building, and finally in John 17, Jesus is going to the cross. And when Jesus, it says in John 17, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Jesus goes to the cross, and his hour has come. And this, this is astounding. There's only two places in the book of John where John mentions the mother of Jesus. He never actually refers to her as Mary. There's only two places. One is here in John 2, and the other one is in John 19, when Jesus is hanging on the cross. And as he's hanging on the cross... Jesus says, um, he says to John, he says to the disciple, to the apostle John, he says to John, behold your mother. And it says, and from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. Jesus is hanging on the cross and he's saying to his mother, Mary, I'm not going to be able to take care of you anymore. And he looks at his friend John and says, John, I want you to take care of my mother because my hour has not yet come. Or not, because my hour isn't here, now here. So John, back to the wedding in John 2. Mary says, Jesus, there's no wine. And Jesus says, literally, I think what he's saying is this. Mary, I'm going to go, I'm going to do this thing that you're asking me with the wine. But do you understand how this is going to change the relationship between you and me? Because for me to provide this wine is not ultimately about a magic trick. It's going to come at the cost of my own life, and it will fundamentally change my relationship to you, Mary. Jesus sits at this wedding, thinking about his own wedding, knowing that his wedding will one day come only at the cost of his own life. Knowing that the wine that never runs out is because he will shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus sits at this wedding, longing for his wedding day, but knowing that in order for him to get to his wedding day, he will have to bear the entire expense in his body. You see the beauty of the depth of Jesus' sacrifice? That there is no cost that he was unwilling to pay in order to make you his own, in order to show you his love for you. Every parent knows that love, the essence of love is self-sacrifice. There is no expression of love, whether it's for a, uh, from a parent to a child, from a lover to his or her beloved without sacrifice. And Jesus here shows us the overwhelming cost that he is willing to pay in order to show you that he loves you. In the cross of Jesus, we see the price that God was willing to pay in order to make you his own. Jesus invites you to come to a party that he himself has paid for. 
Jesus sits at this wedding longing for the day when he will finally stand at the bottom of the aisle and see his bride emerge in a beautiful white dress and he is eager, he is eager for you. He is eager for that day. Do you believe that Jesus longs for you like a, like a groom longs for his bride? You know, we talk about, like, do you believe in Jesus? And of course, like, that's a great question to ask, but Jesus doesn't want you just to believe in him. Jesus doesn't want your, you know, your tradition. Jesus doesn't just want your, um, your obedience. Jesus wants you. Jesus doesn't want you to be historically convinced of the reliable accounts of the resurrection so that you will believe that this historical event actually took place in history. And then you go on about the rest of your... Jesus wants you. Jesus wants to be your lover. Do you believe that Jesus smiles at you? That he is pleased with you? That he looks at you and he is eager to be with you? Do you believe that? That's what this passage shows us. So how should we respond? How should we respond as individuals? Or, again, back to, since it's our birthday as a, as a church, how do we as a church corporately respond to this? What would it look like to, um, to form a culture around what we see of Jesus here? How do we embody this culture? Well, uh, Tim Keller, pastor in New York City, said it like this, and I can't do any better. He said, if you want to see how to respond to this, then look at the groom. It's one of, I think, one of the ironies of history that there's a, uh, I mean, can you imagine if the story of your wedding was recorded in the Bible and for 2,000 years, millions and billions of people are reading about your wedding and your name isn't even in there? We don't even, we hardly know anything about this guy. But what does he do? Well, there's two things that the, that the groom does in this passage, and these are the two things that we need to do if we are going to respond to Jesus. The first thing that the groom does is he runs out of wine. He just, he just doesn't have enough. He doesn't have what he needs, and he admits that he's empty. How about you? Um, have you come to the point in your life where you've realized that you don't have what you need? I remember, like, as a college student in my 20s, thinking, you know, just a little hard work. Like, all it takes is hard work, right? In my 30s, I'm going, you know what? Hard work is not going to, like, make me a patient person. <laughs> I cannot work hard enough to um, become gentle. I am far less certain than I was earlier in my life that I can really change myself. Have you come to the point of realizing that, that you don't have what you need, that you are empty, that God can change you? Um, are you ready to ask for help? For us as a church on a, on a kind of a corporate level, um, what I think this means is we can't do this alone. I mean, the reality is we wouldn't have gotten here with only the people in this room right now. Um, I mean, we are in financially dependent on um, people, hundreds of people who have given time and money and who have prayed and contributed insight and just things that they had, who, not because they will ever come to this church, um, but just because they believe that God is building a new church here. And we are dependent on them. We're dependent on them. In order to continue to grow, we're going to have to continue to ask for help. I mean, did you see in the video that we said we're going to start a youth ministry this summer? We're going to hire two youth interns to help us minister to the couple of, there's more than a couple, but the, 
you know, 10 or so uh, middle school and high school students we have already in our church, but more than that, to reach out to, to, uh, to youth-aged, what's it, teenagers in this area. We're going to hire two interns. We don't have the money to do that. We're talking about maybe starting an evening service in the fall. Not because we want this group to be like half the size and half you go to church on Sunday night, but because the reality of a busy area where we live in is some people are just never going to make it to church on Sunday morning. And so instead of waiting until we're like 250 people and then we'll start a second service, we want to start a second service now so that we can reach more people. There's more opportunity for people to come and hear about Jesus. There's more opportunity for people to come and hear, to come to the party. But those things are going to take money and we don't have it. And so we're going to start, um, you don't ever, you, you're not even going to know this is going to happen. I'm just going to go out and raise some money from people who aren't in this room. And hopefully God's going to provide and these things are going to have to ha- are going to happen. We're going to have to ask for help. But we're not going to wait until we're comfortable and we have everything we need to take the next step. That's how we got here. We asked for help and God provided and he continues to do so. And we're going to continue to ask for help. And I'm sure his goodness is not going to run out. The first thing that we have to do is we have to ask for help. We have to run out. But the second thing that this groom does is he takes credit for what Jesus does. <laughs> it's really funny. The, the, um, the MC, he doesn't know where the wine came from. He said, this is really good wine. And it's not clear that the groom knows where the wine came from. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. But he just says, yeah. It's <laughs> the kind of guy I am. Save the best wine for last. He might not even have known what had happened. But that's what it means to be a Christian. You get to take credit for what Jesus has done. Jesus pays the price, and you get the benefit. It's a little bit like this. Um, you know, it's that time of year when, when everybody's selling Girl Scout cookies and raising money for um, jogathons and stuff like that. And, and, and some of you guys do this. You just take your kid's thing, you take it to work, and you like, raise the money for your kids. We <laughs> put it on the internet, and... And because uh, your kids really got to have, I remember like, uh, or those, um, you know, the, the, they got to get the, the prize. They got to have the reward. You know, you got to get the levels, whatever it is. You got to get the, the, uh, the plastic thing that costs like eight cents to make. You got to get it. You got to get it. You got to get it. So what do we do? Like we even know we probably shouldn't, but we take our kids things and we take them to the office and we pass them around. And just all the work gets done and our kids get the plastic thing that they don't really need, but they know it's going to make them so happy. And that's a really weird way to say that's a picture of the gospel. (laughs) Jesus does all of the work, and you get the credit. That's the good news. Jesus is inviting you to a party. Jesus is inviting you to a party. Will you join us? Let's pray together. God, thank you for... Your word, thank you for this incredible passage that shows us what kind of a savior we have, what kind of a God you are. And God, I thank you that you didn't give us just enough, but that you go out of your way, that you go far beyond what would even be considered reasonable to show us that you love us. That you are a God who throws great parties, that you welcome us into your presence, and that you are preparing a feast for us. God, I pray that um, we would respond to you as individuals, that we would cry out and say, we don't have what we need, but Jesus has done everything for us, so we look to him. And God, I pray for Resurrection OC, 
that we would be a church that throws great parties because we follow a God who has said, not I want you to follow the rules, but I have followed the rules, I have obeyed them for you, and I'm inviting you into the celebration. God, would you do that in us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.